0: This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando.
1: This morning's scripture reading comes from Luke chapter 24. As they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. This is God's word. Thanks be to God.
0: Uh, I need to begin by saying that I misspoke in my sermon last Sunday, and I had thought that this week would be our last sermon uh, in this series through many of these unique passages of Luke. But in addition, today we have, I believe, uh, one more sermon to go Next week. And so I had said last week that we would uh, talk about verses 44 and following uh, this week. And these, those are the very famous verses in which Jesus claims to be the hero of all of the scriptures, and he essentially teaches us how to read the Bible uh, in verses 44 and following. But again, I'm going to cover, Lord willing, those verses uh, next week. I had thought that the text just read to you would simply be a part of the scripture reading. Um, that would include all of the remaining verses in Luke 24. But I got excited about um, a few things in our passage, and so I just decided we'd spend an entire sermon on those things. So our passage is yet another uh, post-resurrection experience uh, of Jesus' disciples. It's another post-resurrection experience of Jesus, and all these in Luke's gospel happen in chapter 24. In verse 36, Luke writes uh, this, as they, uh, meaning the followers of Jesus in the upper room, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. It's really important to remember that these things that they were discussing uh, were the resurrection appearances of Jesus to Simon Peter and to the two travelers on the road to Emmaus. The followers of Jesus, in verse 36, already believe that he's alive. What's unique about our passage compared to others uh, in the gospels is found in verse 39. Jesus says this, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see here it is for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. The Apostle John in his gospel does tell of Jesus uh, telling Thomas uh, to touch his hands in his side. But, but in John's gospel, uh, the point there is to prove to Thomas that Jesus was alive, that this was he, and this was not another. The, the point in Luke, what, what I want to consider uh, this morning, is not so much that this is Jesus, but that Jesus had to convince his followers that he had a body, that he was flesh and bones, in verse 37, Luke uses two synonymous Greek words to tell us that the disciples are terrified. They think they're seeing. What does the text say? A spirit. The NIV, I think, rightly translates a ghost. In verse 38, Jesus says, why are you troubled? It's actually a third word for terrified. And then he says, why do you literally, why do thoughts, not doubts, but why do thoughts arise in your hearts? They Verse 37, thought he was a ghost. And he says, verse 38, why are these thoughts in your minds that I'm a ghost? And then Jesus in verses 38 to 42, he makes it his goal to prove to them that he has a body. Look at verse 39. See my hands, see my feet, touch me and see. For or since a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Verse 40, he showed them his hands and his feet. Verse 41, give me something edible. Verse 43, he ate the fish literally in the sight of them. Not just it's me, but it's me and I'm not a ghost and I have a body. This historic account of the resurrected Jesus tells us something about our life in that body, our life in this body, and both of Jesus's bodies. Our life in that body, speaking of the future, our life in this body, speaking of the present, and both of Jesus' bodies. Okay, so first, the text tells us something about our life in that body. I've said this before. I'll say it again. When I was six or seven years old, I asked my sister and my Sunday school teacher, two different people. If you know my sister, you know she could have been my Sunday school teacher. Uh, But they're two different people, and I asked them this same question. I said, if I don't like heaven, can I leave And I remember telling both of them at different times, I really want to be a Christian because heaven sounds so much better than hell. But at the same time, I'm not convinced that heaven sounds all that great. Honestly, I wasn't sure that heaven was going to be better than earth. So my idea of heaven was this. It's somewhere up there. It would involve lots of sitting on clouds, We'd have to sing lots of boring songs with really big words, and in my church experience, only to to an organ. If I had to be in the handbell choir, I was really not that interested in going. Usually when the handbell choir played, the pastor said, heavenly. And so I just associated the handbell choir with the heavens. Maybe so. And further, while I wouldn't know to say it this way, I think I assumed that I would be a disembodied spirit. I kind of just assumed that I would only be visible when I had this heavy, uh, smelly, uh, ugly choir robe on. I don't know exactly how I saw myself, but, but I am sure that I didn't see myself in the way the Bible describes my life and my body in that future time and that future place. I actually asked my sister and my teacher if I could open the door to heaven and see it before I committed my eternity to it. Forever is such a long time. I'm not sure what I would have chosen uh, if I decided I didn't want to go in. So I was a pretty cerebral six-year-old, but I wasn't perfectly logical, okay? But I just wanted to know, before I commit, can I see it? And the bottom line is this. I think our lives show functionally that we struggle with what I struggled with mentally at the age of six. And that is this, that we think heaven is better than hell, but not probably better than earth. We think heaven is better than hell, but probably not better than earth. I thought if heaven is a letdown after earth, forever is a long time to be disappointed. Now, while there is so much mystery, and while there's so much we cannot know at this point, the Bible does tell us plenty about our life in that body. Look at verse 41. After inspecting Jesus's resurrection body, the disciples disbelieved for joy and marveled. They were astonished. They were filled with wonder. They were amazed. My goal at the end of this point, our life in that body is to have us disbelieve with joy, to be filled with wonder. In our vernacular, to disbelieve for joy is this. It's like the people you see on television watching a magic show. They're like, no way. Did that just really happen? Somebody pinch me. This is too good to be true. This is unbelievable. And so the disciples at this point are clearly responding correctly, not incorrectly. Let me make this point biblically. In Philippians 3, the apostle Paul says that when Jesus returns, he will, quote, transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. And so Paul, 25 to 30 years after the resurrection, he knew that Jesus still had a body, and he taught that at Jesus' return, he would take our bodies of low estate, our bodies of humiliation, he would transform them into bodies of glory and grandeur. Further, in 1 Corinthians 15, the apostle Paul says that Jesus in his resurrected body visited with Paul. Paul had seen his glorious body. And then Paul says in verse 20 that Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection, This concept of first fruits, we talked about it a little bit last week, it teaches us at least two things. That Jesus, as the first fruit of a harvest, proves that there is more harvest to come. It is part of our hope that we will be resurrected. But also, second, as first fruit, the fruit that follows is like the first. In other words, if the first fruit on the tree in my backyard is a grapefruit, it wouldn't make any sense to me to expect a tree full of oranges and not grapefruits. The body of believers in the new heavens and the new earth in the age to come will be like the body of Jesus in Luke 24, the body that amazed them. Remember at this point, they were already believing that he was resurrected. They were just blown away by his resurrected body. Paul in first Corinthians 15, he goes on to make comparisons. He says, between the body we have now and the body that we will have in the resurrection. He says, our bodies now are perishable. It's not just that they can die, but they decay. Our bodies will be imperishable. We won't just be uh, immortal, but we won't experience decay. We won't experience destruction. We won't experience in any way diminishment. Paul says of our bodies now that they are filled with weakness. It's a word for illness. He says, but then we will be filled with power. Paul says that our bodies now are bodies of dishonor, disgrace, humiliation, and shame, but that our bodies will be bodies of glory. Glory in the Bible means grandeur and splendor and beauty, and almost always associated with glory is light. Interestingly enough, both the Old Testament and the New Testament clearly teach that our resurrected bodies will shine like light bulbs, light from within. What did the disciples think they saw in Luke 24? A spirit, a ghost, some sort of light without physical substance or matter. Interesting, huh? And Jesus says, touch me, feel me, glory and body we will never get sick, we will never lack strength, we will never be ashamed of our bodies in part or in total, we will never ache, never decay with cancer, never be in, and never feel darkness. Immortal, imperishable, powerful, glorious. They disbelieved because of gladness. They were marveling. Another quick thought about our life in that body, that body that will be. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 18, that when we simply see the new earth, when we see the perfect creation, just seeing it, where we get to live forever, will make all the personal sufferings of this life nothing. But Paul says that the earth now, creation now is amazing and as beautiful and as awe-inspiring as it is. Paul says that now this creation is in bondage that it's experiencing corruption, it's going through decay. He even says that this creation is experiencing pain. And he says that this creation cannot wait to be released. It cannot be released, wait to be released into the glory that it will have when Jesus returns. Not being in our body, not being with Jesus in our body, not being with other believers in our body, but just seeing creation will make all the miseries of this life disappear. In our call to worship, Psalm 96, we we read that at the return of Jesus, when he sets up the totality of his kingdom, when he vanquishes evil and death forever, the psalmist writes, the heavens will be glad, not the heavenly beings. The earth will rejoice. The sea and the creatures in the sea will roar and worship. The field and all that lives in the field will exult and worship. And then he specifically says the trees of the forest will sing and dance for joy before the Lord. Jesus said in Luke 19, as he's making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he says, If the multitudes of disciples do not praise me, the rocks would have cried out in worship. Paul wrote that when we see the beauty and the vibrancy of the creation we get to live in, we will forever forget the miseries of this life. But what else? What else about our life in that body? Think about verses 41 to 43. Look there if you would. Remember, at this point, the disciples are not terrified, but they're marveling. And Jesus asks for food. And I'm sure on some level that Jesus is doing this to continue to prove that he has a body. But on another level and on a deeper level, Jesus is teaching us something. He's making a point at least three times that I could think of this morning in post-resurrection appearances, at least three times Jesus eats with his followers. Now eating meant so much more to them in that culture than what it does to us in our culture. Eating meant friendship, community, intimacy, shared lives. Jesus and asking for fish is telling us that in our life, in that day, we'll eat the most amazing food We will drink the most amazing wine. We will have friendship with Jesus. We will live in community with one another forever. C.S. Lewis used to ask folks to think about the details of their fondest memories in life, their best experiences so far in life. And he would ask them to describe those experiences to him. And he said the vast majority of the reports were of people with family or with friends usually after a long day of work or play, usually in a more beautiful part of God's creation, usually with food and drink, usually with no threat of betrayal or pain. Could we open the door to heaven for just a second and let me look in and decide if I really want to go there? Puritan theologians used to to use this phrase, thin space. To to describe the experiences in life where the presence of God and the presence of heaven is so heavy upon them, they had to ask God to let up. Now, I know that there are times in life now where God and heaven, they, they feel so distant, they feel so absent, but there are times of refreshing. And I know that this is going to sound funny, but I don't know how else to explain it. But there are times where the experience of God can get to the point where it's almost like a pleasurable back scratch turning into an unbearable tickle. I told you it'd be funny. I don't know how else to explain it. But it's that moment where it goes from feeling really good to being too good, and you're like, please let up, please stop. Lewis found it amazing that those thin spaces were so often family and friends gathered around food and drink with no perceived possible threat. It sounds so much like Luke 24, 36 to 42. Can I open the door of heaven and see it before I commit? And in the years since, in a sense, God has occasionally opened the door to me to convince me that I will not be disappointed. Could be in worship, could be with my family after a good meal, could be after a long day of work, falling asleep. Lewis says that in these thin space experiences, there are echoes of the original perfect creation and there are echoes of the age to come. And they resonate so deeply within us and they tell us, you were created for so much more than what you normally experience. And of course, the problem with these places, these amazing experiences, is that now our capacity is so small for enjoying them because now they are so few and far between, and now they do go away. But our life in that body will not be a thin space. It will be a place where there is no distance between God and man, no distance between heaven and earth, and it will never end. I know that my theological categories as a six-year-old were poor and incomplete because I know that the age to come is not just heaven, but it's a new heaven and a new earth. But let me go back into my categories, using them as poor and incomplete as they are, and let me just tell you this. Heaven isn't just better than hell. It's a heck of a lot better than earth. They disbelieved for joy, and they marveled. Second for today, our life in heaven this body. Knowing about our life in that body will radically inform and shape, or I should say it should radically inform and shape our life in this body. And so while there are many, many more, I I thought of three ways in in which our life in that body uh, should radically shape our life in this body, how our future should have an incredible bearing on our present. So first, in light of having a glorious body in the resurrection, we, we can have hope in the physical sufferings of this life. I'll, I'll simply illustrate the point this way. Many of us have heard the name uh, and the story and the ministry uh, of Joni or Johnny Erickson Tata. Johnny is now in her 60s, and she was an athletic and healthy teenage girl, and she had a swimming accident at the age of 18, and she became paralyzed uh, from the shoulders down. And now uh, she is frequently asked what she'll do first in heaven in her resurrected body, and she always answers, I plan to kneel, and then I plan to get up and dance. And, and, and Johnny, who, who grew up Episcopalian, tells of a story of just a few months after her accident where she was at worship and she was enjoying worship and the priest called the congregation to kneel before the Lord in humble worship. And she said that she, she sat there in her wheelchair, everyone below her, and she wept. And she said, my heart cried out in anger to the Lord, I will never be able to kneel again. And she said, the Lord whispered in her ear, never, never, ever. And she said, in that moment, the Lord gave her such a deep sense of joy and peace and hope in the doctrine of the resurrection body. She has ever since dreamt of the day where she kneels before him and dances in his presence. If this life is the depth of a gate that leads into the deepest city ever, And we can have hope in the midst of our physical sufferings, in the midst of our physical losses, whatever they are in this life, whatever they may be. First, hope in the physical sufferings of this life. A second way in which that life that is to come should shape this life that is now. Freedom from the tyranny of this life. Simply stated, if this life is all we have, or more specifically, if this body is all we'll ever have, that puts such incredible pressure on us in how we live this life and what we do in this body. Think about The Bucket List. The Bucket List is a movie I did not see, although I want to. Some of my favorite actors are in the movie. I have nothing against the movie, and I am not necessarily against the concept of having a bucket list. But I just want you to think with me for a second. Okay, if you're wondering what a bucket list is, um, uh, listen to how bucketlist.org presents itself uh, uh, on its first page. Log and catalog all the stuff you want to accomplish before you expire. Climb this mountain, lose this much weight, lift this much weight, visit this city, see this landmark, swim with whales, travel to Mars. You see, if this life and if this body and if this world is all we have, it puts such enormous pressure on us to have certain experiences now. But if our life in this body is foam on a wave, and if our life in the next body is the ocean, in other words, if we don't expire, it kind of makes a bucket list for this life pretty inconsequential. I don't want to be known as the pastor in Orlando that says don't have bucket lists, so we'll keep them. (laughs) But, But I just wonder to what extent our lists ignore the fact that we will have better bodies and a better creation and endless time in the age to come. But also not just these pleasurable experiences, but If this life is all we have, there's this incredible pressure to accomplish certain things in this life, to feel like we've made something of our existence before we expire. For me, it was Tuesday. I was reading city Bible reading, and I read of Joseph in Genesis 41. And I read that at the age of 30, he had become the most powerful man in Egypt except for Pharaoh. And I instantly felt the feeling of failure like I was worthless like I've wasted my life. I can't control my kids, let alone an entire country. I'm almost 38. And when I look at what he did by 30, I'm like, man, I haven't done anything. I was sad. This is repentance. I sold this to two people just to kind of let them know what I was caught, what sin I was caught in that morning. Like, me too, me too, I know, me too. If I'm honest, I have to admit that I struggle with, comparing myself to other pastors, to other successes, to other accomplishments. I have this weird desire to know how old they are, how big their ministry is, how long they've been working at it. And as I reflected on Tuesday, I realized that a lot of this time-oriented pressure uh, comes to me because I'm an arrogant and a fearful man, but I live in a world that has taught me that this life is all that I have, and I have to make the most of it as fast as I possibly can. So whether it's these physical experiences or these life accomplishments, knowing that I will live forever in a glorious body in the new heavens and the new earth helps to free me from the tyranny of this life. i thinking that I've only lived if I have certain experiences and certain accomplishments before I kick the bucket. Finally, knowing about our life in that body gives us definition for our life in this body. Okay, now again, I'm gonna make a promise about next week that I actually believe I can keep, okay? But uh, I just wanna briefly uh, speak to a reality a little farther in our text. If you have your Bibles, you can open them, but if not, it's not a big deal. I'm gonna read one verse. One verse. We know that the other gospels, uh, the other gospels tell us that the disciples were in the upper room, and prior to believing that Jesus uh, was alive, they were discussing what they should do with their lives now that they know that Jesus is apparently dead. And so Jesus, in verse forty-eight of Luke twenty-four, enters into their world, and he answers that question. He's not dead. He's alive, and in that reality, he gives them definition for their lives. He says, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. So now while these things to which they were going to bear witness is more than just the resurrected body of Jesus, it certainly includes the resurrected body of Jesus. And in a nutshell, and again, I'm hopefully going to discuss this more next week, Jesus is saying, since I'm giving you that body, you give me this body. He's saying, since I'm giving you that life, you give me this life. Jesus says, "Your life is now defined now as a witness of these things. Go into the world and tell them about me. Your life in this body is not about your bucket list, it's about my bucket list. It's not about your accomplishments, your identity, your success, your reputation. It's about my accomplishment, my success, my reputation, my identity. You're my witnesses. The Greek word for witness is martyres, and it's hard for me to say that without rolling my R for as many years as I took Spanish. But martyres uh, in the Bible is translated either as witness or as martyr, depending on the context. And of course, historically, the English word came later, and the English word martyr comes from the Greek word martyres, because for so many centuries, the Christians lost their life bearing witness to Jesus. And so for you and me in the context in which we live, it's so important to remember that because of our life in that body, Jesus defines our life in this body as a witness, a martyr. Either we die at one climactic moment of proclaiming Jesus or we give our lives to the proclamation of this gospel. race could be one sword thrust, could be 10,000 paper cuts. Since I'm giving you that body, you give me this body. Since I'm giving you that life, you give me this life. Lastly, for today, the story of Jesus' resurrected body not only tells us of something about our life in that body and our life in this body, but it also tells us something about both of Jesus' bodies. How can we give him this life? Why would we give him this life? There's something about both of Jesus's bodies. So I I struggled really to name this point because the Bible uh, teaches that Jesus's resurrected body and our resurrected bodies, uh, for that matter, they have continuity with our body in this age and they have discontinuity with our body in this age. So Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 uses the illustration of a seed that is buried, that dies, and that comes alive as a plant to talk about our two bodies. And so there's obvious continuity between the two and there's obvious discontinuity between the two. And so I want you to know that in saying that this story tells us something about both of Jesus's bodies, I don't mean that he had two distinct bodies and there's no connection. I just mean that he had a lowly body of suffering that went into the grave and he was resurrected, an exalted body of glory. He was not resuscitated, he was resurrected. Discontinuity and continuity. You can imagine sort of the time and the speculation, and the conversation between theologians as to what the continuity is and what the discontinuity is. But amidst all that speculation, amidst all that uncertainty about uh, what is true of Jesus' body compared to the old and what is not true compared to the old, there's one continuity between both bodies that we need to catch in our text today. Consider again verses 39 and 40. See my hands see my feet, touch and see. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. Why hands and why feet? I totally understand hands. That's the easiest thing to extend to someone for them to inspect it. But why feet? In John 20, we read that Thomas was not there the first time that Jesus appeared to his disciples In the upper room, and upon hearing the report that Jesus was alive, Thomas disbelieved, and he said, "...unless I see and stick my finger into the holes in his hand, and unless I place my hand into his side, I will not believe." Three days prior, Jesus had died the horrific death of Roman crucifixion. After unjust trial, after being beaten, after mocked and shamed, his hands were spiked to a cross and his feet were either put together in front of him or put together behind him. And with one spike, his feet were driven into the tree. Once Jesus on the cross had died, a Roman soldier cut a gaping wound into his side to make sure that he was really dead. Upon resurrection, Jesus' body was so amazing, so glorious, and so brilliant, the disciples disbelieved for joy and were marveling some incredible discontinuity with what they've seen for three years. But at the same time, this continuity, holes in his hands, feet, and side. Holes so large that Thomas could stick his finger into Jesus's hand, and he could stick his hand into Jesus's side forever reminders and markers of the love and the grace and the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners like us. This is a clear and repeated theme in the Bible. In Revelation 5, John writes of Jesus at the throne, the resurrected Jesus at the mercy seat of God's throne. And John said that Jesus was standing, so he's alive, but he had the appearance of a lamb that's been slain still has the holes. A forever reminder to us of the grace and the love and the sacrifice of Jesus for us. We have not lived for him in rebellion. We have lived for ourselves. Jesus, perfect, spotless, lamb of God, goes to the cross, is spiked through the hands and the feet, has the sword thrust into his side, and in his glorious resurrection body, those holes are still there so that forever we will remember the love and the grace and the sacrifice of God for us. His resurrection body still has the marks of his love. Here's how, here's why. This is how and this is why we can give this body and this life to him and bearing witness for him. Jesus says, since I gave my life to give you that life, Since I gave my body to give you that body, trust me and give me this life and this body. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that when you said peace to you, to your disciples, you raised your hand to benedict them and bless them, and in your hand was a whole. We thank you for this reminder to them that they will be whole forever because you, we're driven through at the cross. Jesus, we thank you that our forever is heaven because you went to hell for us. We thank you that our forever is in a body of glory because you took on a body of suffering to die for us. We thank you that our minds cannot imagine where we're going. What bliss, what fun, what hope. Jesus, we praise you that every day of our lives, we discover that your love is more beautiful and more fresh and more new and more glorious than we can imagine. Give us your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see you and where you are and where we're citizens. Help us to live as though we're citizens of heaven and not earth. Show us how to live in this place, not seeking life, but living because you've given us life. May we be such an extravagant blessing to our neighbors and to our family and to our friends and to this city that the only reason we live so well before them is the hope that we have in you. God, free us from the tyranny of trying to find life in this life. Send us into this life with the life you've given us in Christ. In your name we pray. Amen.